Please do. Uh, welcome to the final uh, Dean Seminar for this term and this year. Uh, well, the turnout may be small, it's about quality, not quantity. <laughs> uh, and we're delighted to have John here with us. John has just been visiting for the last six months, um, has taught our core course, taught an elective, helped to uh, do the search for L'Oreal professor, and still had some time to do a little research now and again. And, and so, uh, his final day at SBS? I'm actually here a few more days. Almost final day at SBS. <laughs> we have an opportunity to welcome him and to hear some of his research on making markets with personal data. So thank you, John, for all you've done. Thank you in advance for your seminar. Thank you. We'll, we'll review it at the end of the seminar, shall we? <laughs> right well, thank you for having me. It's, um, uh, it's, it's great. I, I want to encourage you to treat this as um, something that, that you can uh, dispute, disagree with, um, uh, not understand. In fact, if you understand it, you probably haven't understood it <laughs> because it's very, very messy. Um, but I think very important um, to me, <laughs> to me. I make no claims to its importance to anyone else. We are clearly living at a, at a time of, of accelerating change in marketing. Um, we have been living in a period of change, I think, for, um, for about the last 20 years. And, and I think I, I believe that because I wrote a case on, um, on Dove uh, that uh, starts in 1948 or 50, something like that, with the birth of the brand and the birth of television simultaneously and then follows the history of that brand through till uh, about 2013. And the interesting thing to me, do I need this? Is this working? Yeah. Uh, the interesting thing to me about that history is that nothing changes in copy strategy, mode of execution, um, some improvements in, in the sophistication of television advertising, but essentially nothing changes from a marketing strategy point of view. Um, from the birth of the brand until 2002. And then, with the, the launch of uh, the Real Beauty campaign, there is something of a re revolution every two years. A revolution in method or a revolution in copy strategy, a uh, revolution in media. Um, and, of course, the latest step in that revolution is the, is the Sketches campaign that has been running now for a year or so. Although I don't think that that's as revolutionary, in, in, in a sense, it's falling behind the pace of change. It doesn't exploit the social revolution. So the uh, point of that long preamble is to suggest that something's changing um, in a way that, that, that marketing practice uh, is able to capitalize on. Something quite, f uh, you know, quite primary is happening every couple of years. Um, and I won't, re I won't review those, because I'm really concerned with, in a sense, the last maybe three to four years of that period of, of, of rapid change. And that is the um, change that has been precipitated by the uh, dramatically reduced cost of storing and, and, and analyzing data. As I said in the abstract of the talk, for my personal purposes, it's better to think about big data vertical by vertical. If we, if we talk about big data as a problem in IT, you, um, 
you, you, you tend to view it as a problem in, in hardware and software and, and, and analytics. And, and as you look at it that way, particularly at the analytics, you realize that what you analyze is a function of how you use it. And so it's actually better to leave that to the IBMs and the Teradatas and so on of the world to, to do their own marketing. <laughs> you know, let them sell us on the hardware of, of big data and let us, as, as business schools, think about the problem vertical by vertical. Think about the system of firms, what we would have once upon a time called the industry, that is built up around each of the, um, of the verticals. So, uh, as I said in the abstract, a vertical could be health, it could be financial services, it could be, uh, it could be, it could be terrorism detection, it could be sport, it could be any area where a group of people care about better understanding on, and more dynamic understanding of, uh, of what's going on and can use the data that, that these activities spin off. My focus here, and really all I have thought about at all, is its use for um, making markets. So the work I'll be describing is highly descriptive. It's very much a collection of facts. And what I would need help on is, is drawing implications of these facts, for thinking about these facts in, in, um, in context, in, in particularly in the context of a business school, particularly in the context of people teaching the making of markets, and particularly non-financial markets. Although I think one thing that's becoming clear is that that line between markets in financial instruments and markets in, in information about consumers isn't as sharp as it may have been once upon a time. Um, we can explore that. But so th it's that kind of thing where I think the, we as a group can, can, can interact with me as a boring data collector. The project came about about this time last year um, when um, we were, it, it, I was given some funding that enabled a team of about five people to be assembled and to work for about four months. Clearly when research is, is, is constructed in that way, somebody sees an advantage to having me do the work, and so there's a tension between what their interests were and what truth was that I hope I survived. Uh, but the, uh, the objective then was to, was to put a number on something uh, called the personal data ecosystem. The, da the, the ecosystem made up of data about individuals. Uh, we call it an ecosystem because I think the word industry um, is, is increasingly not the right word. I myself have had something of a struggle to adopt this word. I, I've, I've spent quite a bit of time trying to trace its, uh, its, its, its origins. And um, you see it sort of creeping into, into economics um, in about the 70s uh, uh, with um, um, some relatively um, metaphorical kinds of economists, not mainstream economists, uh, who are drawing, trying to draw attention to the fluid nature of, of, the, of the cooperation and, and competition among players. Um, and then you see it kind of adopted with a, with, with a great vigor in the last decade or so. And I think the reason for that is that increasingly, if we try to think of a data-dependent 
industry, in other words, an industry whose raw material isn't oil or steel but is data, um, we see a fluidity that just doesn't exist, a, a speed of change that doesn't exist if the raw material is steel or um, uh, yes, petroleum or something like that. The institutions are formed and disappear and are reformed and, and, and uh, repurposed uh, much more rapidly than they are. And, and so, um, I guess uh, one, one fellow in particular convinced me, and, and that was a marine biologist who gave a talk when I was running the Marketing Science Institute. And he came to the marketing science community and said, I study marine tidal pools, and I think he, uh, you study industries that look like marine tidal pools. Uh, and and, and the, the, the parallel is this. In a, in a marine tidal pool, he says, there are two extreme forms of life. There's the octopus and the clam. And these represent two kind of uh, strategies toward risk. So the clam has got one solution, uh, which is sort of clam up, and it's pretty effective. It can survive the times when there's no water in the pool and the times when there is water in the pool. It just does the same thing. The octopus is, of course, well known for having a brain at the end of each tentacle. So an octopus can be doing one thing with one part of its mind and something entirely different with another part of its mind. So it responds to uncertainty in the environment by having tremendous speed of adaptation. And the, and the clam and the octopus live together in a kind of a symbiotic but also hostile relationship, and so do all the other species, uh, from the, the most fine-grained to the largest, from the, the plants to the, to the, to the, um, the little things, <laughs> whatever they're called that the others eat. The bugs, is, is that the yes. technical term? Protozoa, <laughs> yes. So that's the sort of picture that, uh, that I want to kind of convince you justifies the word ecosystem. Okay, now we'll pick up the pace. <laughs> um, so we're going to try and value that system, and we'll value it as a flow of payments. So in a way, this is a kind of a grotesquely uh, a simplified accounting exercise. So we try to follow payments made by marketers for services that are dependent on data. So not always the purchase of data, but sometimes the purchase of services that couldn't be done without data. And then we subtract out the revenues that they get not at, from selling the data. So it's a net, um, a net payment for data-dependent services. And these services are probably primarily advertising, physical distribution, and digital distribution, and the management of a service relationship, for example, a loyalty program uh, of, a, of a supermarket. Those are where the, the concentration of work occurs. Um, we visualize that, that system as, as a set of intermediaries. And, that, and that's important because some of the companies that are here that buy the services from the intermediaries do, in fact, perform the services themselves. Uh, probably the extreme case is the credit card industry. Uh, credit cards tend not to be big buyers of data um, or big depend reliers on on uh, the services of third parties because their business is relatively routine and so they're able to bring it into the company and internalize uh, those capabilities within the firm. Um, the reason we've excluded them is simply because there are no payments and so there's nothing to monitor. And when you ask them what it costs to run this part of their business, they either don't know or have no interest in confiding. 
So uh, we, 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 we clearly are producing a, a slightly conservative number. We don't think it's very conservative because we don't think many companies do a lot of this work uh, internally. So on the, on the left, you've got producers of goods and services. Uh, they buy from an economy that gathers and uses data on people. So that's the economy in the box. And they use that data to perform, inform, persuade, and transact with customers and business buyers. It's a both a B2C and a B2C market, B2B. And, and then at the other side, you've got the people that the firms are trying to reach. The, the main finding is that that box contains, uh, that the sum of the expenditures in that box is $156 billion, or was in 2012. We did the work in 13 and looking for, at uh, published records from 2012. Um, and you know, we're suggesting that none of that work could have been performed but for individual level consumer data. The goals would have been pursued, but the general finding is that that would have been a less, um, a less efficient use of resources. And so it would probably have cost more than $156 billion to get the work done if there hadn't been individual level data. And that's probably one, you know, one of the paradoxes of, if not of data-driven marketing, of all marketing. Marketing is a wasteful activity. When a market mo works most efficiently, it has the least marketing. So whenever you see a professor of marketing, you think to yourself, can't we get rid of that guy? Because <laughs> he's not doing anything. Uh, he's a cost. Um, I think, you know, it's maybe it's a metaphor, but I think that the, that the New York Stock Exchange doesn't have much marketing, right? I mean, it more or less um, achieves its market-making function without the intervention of people saying, buy this stock or, or, or sell this stock to any significant degree. Um, Certainly, there's no, there, there's, no, there's no pricing function. It's achieved by, by auction. And there's no physical distribution function beyond the minimal function that was performed by, by uh, a stock exchange. So marketing is wasteful. And when marketing is able to operate at the individual level, it tends to be less wasteful. I think, I can, you know, I think I'll, I'll establish that. And therefore, if you didn't do it this way, you'd spend more money. Now, is 156 a big number or a small number? We felt some need to, to have an opinion on that. So we spent quite a bit of time trying to work out how much money is consumed by the US economy. This is all US data, right? Because we had to put our arms around something. P spent a lot of time trying to work out how much money is spent in the US economy on marketing. <coughs> and I suppose the most reliable source we found was some work that um, um, has been done by the CMO survey that comes out of Duke University each year, which suggests that most, gives you a range of, 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 of um, marketing expenditures as percent of, of top line revenue, that suggested to us about 1.2 trillion is spent on marketing, which means that right now we're at about, whatever it is, 15 over 12, 15 over 120, a little more than 10%, a little less than 15% of all marketing is, is um, individual level data driven. Yeah. So John, this is kind of a higher level question, but um, so you're talking about market making. Um, there's 
sort of a long history of, of, of if you look at say the automobile industry for example, there's a lot there's sort of an ecosystem that needed to come together for that to happen, right? So there's you know the infrastructure and there's you know the producers, the consumers, all these things. And, and there's an element of market making in that. Same in stock markets. So we had in our department, Ezra Zuckerman from MIT presented recently, and he looked at he looks at investment bankers and which stocks they cover. But it, it's a it's, it's an effort in market making and sort of mm -hmm. shaping demand and, and, and information and things like that. So it, it um, in terms of so your focus, is there insights from those types of settings that play out in in the setting that you're looking at? So you're looking at sounds like the emergence of a market in essence in some fashion. Or is yeah. this a special case that is not is different from other types of markets and how they come to be and sort of or innovation ecosystems things like that? So, how how does that sort of those other contexts play out comparatively vis-a-vis -vis sort of the se setting that you're looking at? Yeah, you know the, the, that's that's what the study has begun to do to my brain. It's it's made me realize all the things that uh, I, that I don't know and all the questions that nobody answers. I mean, when I wanted to know the value of marketing, I called. Um, uh, Kevin Keller, who's the author of the leading textbook in, in marketing, and I said, I'm, I expected on page one to have uh, a, sta a, sa a statement, marketing is so much percent of the, US, of the US GDP, or marketing is so many dollars. And I said, no such number appears. <laughs> Will there be one in the next edition? <laughs> and he said he knew of no such number. But that begs, of course, the question that's implicit in what you say, Cars, yes, cars are in this, uh, in this market. Financial services are not in this market. Um, when you think about the market-making functions of the institutions that you describe, I, I'm assuming they're a very, very much smaller proportion of total revenue, which would be total transaction volume times prices. And so, in, in that sense, don't belong on, on the radar of someone who's interested in marketing. But it's ex exactly the kind of fundamental question. I mean, Al Silk, when I, I talked along these lines at, at Harvard last, before I came here, said, oh, that used to be a very popular topic uh, in the 1930s. <laughs> and then people lost interest in it. So early stage marketing was very much concerned with the efficiency or inefficiency of the system by which pr primarily agricultural products reached their markets. Um, so you're not interested in market making um, in, in sort of a general sense. It's more marketing in this Well, I'd like to think it's a general sense, but given you know, where I've spent sure. my, my youth, um, now that I <laughs> get old enough to ask the question, I realize that we haven't, you know, we talk about the things that the clients of these firms use these firms to sell. And by and large, that's the world of supermarkets, the world of, you know, of, of, of department stores, and so on, and, and excludes you know, we, we, say we say it covers B2B, but um, it probably doesn't in, in the fundamental sense. When we dealt with a supplier who said, yes, many of my clients are B2B buyers, we, 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 we took what they said and built it into the accounting system. Um, okay, so any other? Okay, so we look at this ecosystem and we identify initially about 3,500 companies that we think have some claim to be in that ecosystem uh, using a variety of sources. Um, we then boiled that down to about 625 that were, that were large, and we created some categories for all other, where we thought a group of those, of those firms was quite substantial. So we probably have numbers for about 750 
um, entities, most of which are, are individual firms. We then took 10% of those firms and interviewed them um, and relied on, on public source data for, the, uh, for the, 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 the remainder. And the public source data was by and large uh, 10Ks and 10Qs, but there are some significant private companies in there and, um, and we, we, we were not tremendously re, you know, confident of, of the numbers we attached to, to private companies. With 156 billion as the, as the final answer, you can see that uh, unless you're worth about half a billion in, in annual revenue, you're a rounding error in the answer. Um, so we, do, we don't handle very small companies very well in this study. The uh, market is concentrated in the, in the large end. We've previously thought a little bit about groups like Etsy and, and eBay uh, resellers. And we've looked at, 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 I suppose, five or six of those, shall we say, collectives of, of, of individually very small but collectively fairly large firms. And they didn't rise to the level that matters to this particular study. We then chop it into three vertical slices. We've got people who are concerned with strategy, but not execution. You've got consumer-facing companies on that side, and, and I'll just identify them. Search companies, display companies. Uh, the postal service figures very large here, and telemarketing is, is a small but still persisting uh, activity. At strategy, you've got ad agencies and direct agencies as the primary kind of um, the people who do the work. But in the middle, you've got uh, you know, a mystery. <laughs> this is the part that isn't visible to us as marketing professors uh, or as consumers. And it's the part that I found very fascinating. So beginning of last summer, I had heard of these companies. I had no idea what they stood for. By the end of it, I was beginning to get a sense, and you'll see just to what extent I mean beginning, because it's a very complex and very dynamic m machine. But that's the first slicing of the problem. The second slicing is this one. We slice it into a, a part that, let's deal with the bottom first of all, because it's more familiar, uh, a part that deals with personally identifiable information. Things like your mail address, your email address, things that locate you as an individual at a place where we can come and, and, and visit you if we want to. And at the top, we deal with uh, pseudonymized data, <clears throat> and, and I think what's interesting about that distinction that hadn't fully occurred to me until we began to look at it is, is, is this fact, that personally identifiable information is collected, whereas pseudonymized information is received. Um, much of it is collected from, from the government and we're going to end, uh, toward the end, we're going to look at the role of the government as regulators of the system. So it's important to note that most of what's entering the ecosystem on the lower side comes from um, government departments that sell that information uh, to, make, to make money. Department of Motor Vehicles, registration of, of, of homes and uh, um, properties, uh, the postal change of address uh, system, um, magazine subscriber lists, uh, bank records, merchant files, credit cards, and so on. All of that stuff is, is acquired by a group of companies that are actually quite mature. This work began probably in the 1870s. 
fact, one of the earliest lists that started the business was a list of the school teachers of the United States, created by a company called Scholastic that still exists to this day, although its business model has evolved. But Scholastic took that list of every school teacher and offered it to people who make school supplies and started a business. Montgomery Ward started a business around that time, Sears Roebuck a little while later. And so you had a long-standing tradition of getting a name and address wherever it was to be found and uh, organizing it first on um, uh, metal plates, addressograph plates, later on Hollerith cards, later on mainframe computers, later on tapes. I mean, the history of, the history of database marketing is a history of, 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 inf of, of computing, uh, as you might expect. And it's why changes in computing capacity and, and methods change the pace at which, and, and change the procedures by which this is done. This other stuff is, if this, is a, if this goes back to the 1870s, this goes back to probably the turn of this century, 2000. Much newer sort of activity. And this is the activity of seeing you as you arrive into the ecosystem. You arrive uh, because you've gone to a, a computer and, and uh, typed in a URL or to a search engine. Or more increasingly, you've gone because you've got um, um, an, uh, an operating system fingerprint on your cell phone. Uh, you've got cell phone settings, hardware clocks, uh, or active device fingerprints like MAC addresses. So increasingly, it's your phone talking into the ecosystem. So, <laughs> you know, I was at a trade show quite early in the project, and we were looking at, at, at this uh, direct marketing trade show, and I said, gosh, these people are behind the times. They are... Um, you know, where's the Google, where's the Facebook, where's the, where are the people at the leading edge of data? And, and, and my colleague, who I haven't actually acknowledged, Peter Johnson, at, who uh, has an affi affiliation with Columbia, but has a long affiliation with, um, with the world of direct marketing, said to me, well, John, you, you, know, you clearly don't get it. You're looking at the lower half of this picture. <laughs> this is that world. That, that top world isn't of interest to this trade show. Uh, it's a different universe. And, and uh, that was where I began to see the, 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 the fact that what we call big data is, is as much an old business as it is a new business. But the thing, that, uh, the thing that's important, I think, from many points of view, but regulation is one of them, is that these two worlds aren't separate. Yeah? Why do you differentiate between received and collected? I mean, People on the right, a lot of those are aggregators too, right? I mean, including the operating system vendors, right? I mean, including the operating system vendors, right? I mean, the phone companies, all those kind of people, they're all kind of in the business of trying to aggregate that kind of data and potentially sell it. They may not know who the market is. Well, I'll give you the phone companies, although um, uh, I'll give it to you because it's worth nothing. Right? I was just with, uh, with one of the European phone companies, and, and they don't know what. To they, don't do. know, they don't know what to do with it. Yeah. So I'll give you the phone companies, but name one other that, that aggregates and creates what you could call a list. Is there a list of... Um, well, how about companies like Yelp or anyone that does location-based services? Um, do you um, so, so Yelp assembles an email list if you give it your email. Well, no, I mean, for you, but I'm saying it, it, basically, it, it basically is aggregating what you... What you're searching on, or what you are, where you are when you search on something, what you're looking at. I mean, it's obviously. Well, so you're using aggregate in the sense of one customer over time. 
which is fine, I think. But this, this refers to aggregating um, many customers at one point in time, all the people who are currently subscribing to a magazine. All right. Well, I, I think it does. I mean, I, I think it. I think it, it's a it's a process that we had no way of. We couldn't perform that process until we had, um, you know, until people were coming to marketing. What in marketing we call, you know, uh, well, let's not get into that. But we, people come to you as opposed to you go to them, and, and you're not buying that. No. So, I mean, Apple. Well, uh, no, I think it's I think it's sort of fundamental, <laughs> because um, you know because regulators have gotten used to this, and have a set of rules in place that manage this process, and 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 are not particularly troubled by an increase in the volume of this. This is what, what really frightens them. They don't know what to do about what they call surveillance. Um, the no, the fact that you're monitored. So, so, so you don't you, you you excluded credit card. Yes. Mm -hmm. Theoretically, where would you put credit card activity? On the left or the right? Well, if someone set up a business consulting two credit cards, providing an aggregated credit card service to other to credit card companies who chose, therefore, not to do it themselves, um, uh, they would. Let's see. So, so. That's called a credit bureau or a debit bureau. Yes. Yes. So, Experian, Axiom, and, and TransUnion all sit here in the sense that they have collected the names and addresses of, uh, of everyone in the United States, and then they, uh, and then they augment that, that, that database. Right, but say some, I'm, I'm buying uh, garden, gardening supplies, mm -hmm. frequently, right? I mean, the credit card company theoretically can make that information available to people that are interested in gardening. That's what they're what my phone is doing, right? What I'm searching on, right? So um, it's just a much more antiquated no, it, it's 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 very. Uh, this information, these these identifiers, have a life, typically three weeks. So this is a dynamic process that has to be where information has to be acted on quickly, or it's going to be worthless. Uh, these folks have, have uh, you know, it will attribute. I mean, the people selling the data will attribute a life of two years to it. People buying it are sometimes more skeptical, but but it's definitely less perishable. Uh, but, but that's because the one piece of information is coming in, right. cookies put in your browser, or you... Okay. Yeah, okay. This, this link between the two is the area that the Federal Trade Commission uh, and Senator Rockefeller and a number of people in the United States became very concerned about. I think people didn't get concerned in the EU because uh, they don't think this can happen here, and they may be right. What's happening there is that... Um, is that a business is emerging called linking in which um, if you go to a dating site, you're cookied as you go to the dating site, and you're then asked to, re to register or to, or to, uh, you know, to re-enroll, to register or, uh, or to, or to um, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> you know, you hear me? Log in, yeah, thank you. Such an unfamiliar term. <laughs> right, so you're either registering or logging in, but in both cases you're supplying now voluntarily your email and frequently your mail address and frequently some 
some demographic data. So there is a small number of such firms that are able to capture you in both coming and going. And these firms will then turn around and sell that data to a group of, of, of firms, which we'll look at, DataLogix, uh, LiveRamp, um, RapLeaf, and so on. In fact, nine of them were called in by the Federal Trade Commission to explain what they're up to, because those firms will then match name and address with, with this perishable um, uh, identifier in, in, in the ether, in the, in, in the, in the world of, 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 uh, of coming and going uh, f f to websites and, and to cell phone and using cell phones. They'll make that match and they'll sell it off as fast as they can um, to companies that want to make that match, that want, that want, for a number of reasons that we'll look at in some detail, want to use that to, uh, to, to, do, to do marketing. I'm told, secondhand, thirdhand, that only about 15% of the two worlds is actually matched today. So you can imagine that right now nobody's actually marketing, in a mass marketing sense, across the combined world of direct, classic direct marketing, personally identified information, and pseudonymized information. Nobody's able to do it on a scale large enough to warrant that as a primary market. But for modeling purposes and for, um, and, and, and for efficiency and for, and for inference, it's a wonderful, you know, very important database to, to contemporary methods. If it, works, if it works for the 15%, it can be hoped it will work for the, for the rest of the market. Um, so this is the result of, of doing this work. Uh, I've, I'm going to fill in the boxes, but I want to sort of reflect on the structure for a moment. So you'll see the structure that I gave you earlier, the strategy structure here, the consumer-facing structure here, and then uh, this area in the middle, which I've labeled customer targeting and audience selection, because this, you know, this is how fundamental I, I think the distinction is. Customer targeting means I'll find the customers that you, sh you the marketer, should be reaching. I'll tell you that your product, um, you know, so an Axiom or an Experian, uh, or, or well, Axiom has been the one of the, of the credit bureaus that has gotten most interested in doing this. But they will tell you that if this is your product, these are the kinds of people that buy that product and they've got two or 300 fields uh, that, so they can, do, they can do modeling to work out you know, what those characteristics are. Um, a relatively well-defined activity, what's called scoring a list, is something that people have been writing academic papers about for 50 years. You know, what, what price should you pay and how deep should you mine into a list is a beautifully stable problem in statistics. This is a very different business. This is the business, and we'll look at it in a little more detail, of saying, okay, somebody's just showed up on the web, do you want them or not? What do you know about them? And how much are you willing to pay to reach that person? Um, we've then got a group of services that are largely in the physical world and a group of services that are in the, in the uh, digital world. And we've got a group of strategists who don't care because they're trying to allocate resources across those two modes of interaction. There are some things like fulfillment uh, and e-commerce ordering. There's measurement in both domains, and there's this thing, uh, the corpus callosum, that runs between the two worlds, which is growing in importance. 
Um, a question that somebody asked me once is, you know, is this just a snapshot? Is this how the world is today and it's going to be something totally different tomorrow? And if it is, well, you know, then we, we shouldn't take too long over studying it. But I think it's not. I, th I think this is the metaphor, very, you know, it's very, uh, it's not very convincing, but it's a metaphor. Um, if you walk around the Anthropology Museum at, um, over the other side of the town, you can look at a lot of skeletons of mammals. And um, they, they all have a big pelvis bone on each side. They have a rib cage. Um, uh, they have a, a skull that's totally enclosed. There's a set of common features that are true for almost every mammal from the tiniest to, to the largest. And, and all that's really happening is, is, you know, the elephant has kind of gotten bigger legs because it's got to carry a, a, big, a big body. And um, the ones that swim don't have much in the way of legs at all, but they still have the basics of legs. In other words, the structure has some, has some um, evolutionary robustness, and the environment changes the particular uh, expression of that structure. And, and I think of this uh, as, as my justification for claiming that this is a structure that we can build into, for example, teaching or we can build into the study of, of how things are evolving. Because what we're looking at here is, you know, are the legs going to get bigger or thinner um, as the environment becomes more land-like or more water-like? But I think we'll probably always have somebody performing strategy and somebody performing customer interface. So when Martin Sorrell says, from WPP, <coughs> says, you know, we're not an ad agency anymore, we're a big data company, um, I, I, I want to fine-tune that, and I want to say, sure, you're not an advertising agency holding company anymore, because, yeah, because now a lot of your clients' money is going down here in red, not in, um, well, actually, television doesn't even appear on this chart, so, you know, most of what you were doing in the Mad Men era uh, isn't even in this calculation, but you're not just big data, you're about you're about, here's the way somebody put it that I thought was very nice, you're an enterprise sales force for this whole system. There's a system being emerging here that, that your clients don't understand. And they need that enterprise sales force to hold their hands and say, this is how it's working out. These are the principles that you use. And this is how you need to exploit this environment. Yeah. Is it the case that certain ecosystems or industries um, benefit more from the bottom side, the customer targeting side, as opposed to the audience selection side? So that was a question on my exam this morning. <laughs> so so I mean, example, how would you have answered it? <laughs> if I was selling products and, products and services, and I had a better understanding of who my target customers were, and I, but I still need to match people and I find, you know, target them, I would probably go here. If I was a national security agency and I was interested in terrorism, mm -hmm. then probably I'd be interested in the audience selection. Yes. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's a, a, a very you know, good way to, to, to get at that question. Yes, definitely, I think there are industry-specific dimensions to this problem. And by industry, I mean client industries, yeah. So the, the better defined the target segment for a company, the more they might be interested in the bottom, end, the, the bottom side. Mm -hmm. And for emerging segments, or for products and services that do not necessarily have a direct application at this point, the top side would be more, more interesting? Yeah, uh, I mean, a, a very, uh, today you'd make a, sh a, 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 you go a long way by just saying digital products at the top, physical products at the bottom. 
up to a point, the music at the top, uh, streaming uh, movies. Um, but of course, there are going to be lots of lots of reasons why that's not the whole answer. That's that's you know one factor in the multi-factor determinant of which industries uh, work in which sectors. Um, if there's a, I didn't say what if if this is, if this is ten to fifteen percent of all marketing. What's the other, and how big is it going to get? I think it'll never get more than about fifty percent of all marketing, because built into the f other fifty is personal selling. And I think there'll always be an important role for personal selling. And there'll be some very important role for physical retailing. So those are, those are um, traditional activities. And they then get supported by this ecosystem, but not replaced by it. And so while, you know, while, while, um, while Amazon is here in commerce, Amazon is a very small player in, in total retailing. Uh, Amazon's a very big player in e-retailing, very tiny player in all retailing, and there are very important reasons why that will, will never change, uh, although they will grow a lot bigger, obviously. Okay, so um, who are these players? Well, here are some of the, remember, I've got 650 names, so these are just the very, very biggest. But even so, Google <laughs> appears three times. Google is so large compared to most of the other players that it dominates search and mobile um, uh, interface and Facebook gets in only because of its, uh, its success in display uh, through the desktop. Um, over here, these companies you may not have heard of. You may have heard of Dahumbi, which provides the loyalty program for Tesco. Um, Catalina provides the loyalty program for almost every retailer in, is a supermarket retailer in the United States, uh, except those that are working with Dunhumbi. Uh, Convergence is a similar um, kind of loyalty system. In, in the postal, which should be tagged there, <coughs> you obviously have the, um, the postal service. You have a company like Quad Graphics, which is a, um, a, a publisher that does an important part of its publishing in, in what's, what's called variants. So it'll publish you know, 25 editions of Time magazine, advertising specific editions. So there'll be one just for people who show up uh, as, as heavy golfers. There's a phone operation. And then there are the people like Exact Target who do, who do email. And Exact Target was recently bought by um, Salesforce.com. So, you know, if you if you if you use the mammal metaphor, what's what's this wing doing tied to this uh, you know this piece of the uh, the, the rib cage? That's where I'm a little worried about my notion that this is a stable structure, but not too worried. So what kind of people are Catalina or that target? What are they be under the machinery as opposed to under as opposed to kind of uh, I mean, because Tesco and Walgreens or whatever the CVS, whatever the mm -hmm. I mean, they're they're the ones that actually I mean, they, they, Well they're off um, they're off over here. And um, and CVS is an is a good case of, of somebody who does a lot of it themselves. So they don't use a, a Dunhumby or a... Yeah, those guys wouldn't exist in the retailers, whereas Google can exist. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I buy your customer-facing media, yeah. right? Yeah. So they exist to buy the service, right? That's how they collect the data, yeah. right? Catalina and Dunhumby service retailers, they wouldn't exist if it wasn't for larger retailers. Yes, no, I mean, you, th this is, this is a, a good question, and, and we have a good answer. Okay. 
<laughs> as we look at the revenue of a, remember this is a creature made up of companies, uh, which are particular business model solutions to, to rather more fluid situations. So yes, um, the rule we used was, okay, you, you pretty well agree the US Postal Service does what it does, it delivers mail. Big part of its, of its uh, capability and its, and its capital are tied up in that function. We think the same argument applies to, uh, to, the, to the others who are what we call customer facing. They spend a lot of time being customer facing and they have to execute at the customer level very well or they never get the right to think about migrating back. But just as exact target migrates back into here, so your argument becomes true. There's a certain logic to integration, tight integration between here and here. Um, Hart Hanks, which is the, the biggest direct mailer of, uh, of, of, of um, you know, when you get a really big mailing that's going to 90% of American homes, it was done by Hart Hanks. You might say we should put them over here, um, and, and they'd probably be here. But we decided that the revenue was more sensitive to things that, um, that were more like machinery. So they were buying a lot of data, and they were selling a lot of data-dependent services in addition to executing in a big way. And in fact, their actual face-to-face -face execution was done through the US Postal Service. So we had some, some tough decisions to make there. And the part that I think those, where those decisions become important to the, to the theory is when those decisions seem to defy the underlying logic that we're asserting, and so maybe are correct and the underlying logic is flawed, or it could be that they're just bad acquisitions. Well, but I guess it's just dependent on the retail structure, right? So if you go to an economy that has high retail concentration, you're going to find this virus. If you go to an economy that has low retail concentration like Japan, it might be a lot more difficult to find it, right? So I'm just trying to see if you get the mechanism, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You know, most of the, it's the retail structure that gives varieties to those. I mean, you have companies in the States that go to CVS and collect prescription information and sell it to the drug companies, right? Yeah. They only exist because there's only five large drug retailers and wholesalers and they go make deals and collect them. And in the world of independent pharmacies, those companies couldn't exist. Right? So the companies may not exist as well in say Europe, for example. I don't know but I It's a great way to think. I don't know if anyone has has a view on that. What you're saying is the is the complexity of integration, the complexity of, of a roll-up, you know, determines the structure. Yeah, because, because but then the... the think of what people want to be in businesses. So if they're, going to, if they're going to consolidate retail, right, and the first thing they're going to do is how we're going to monetize some of that. Well, we're going to get these companies to come in here and get them to... We're going to sell them our customers, mm -hmm. right? We're going to sell yeah. them our customer information. That's the way that we can pay for it. So. Right. Yeah, but then you've got the... No, this is exactly what I want, and, um, my, and I have to have a reply. But that's so different than the digital world, right? The digital world is, is really, you know, you know, if you think about people that have high stock market valuations, right, it's the ones that they may not, they may not have a lot of profits, mm -hmm. but they have lots of potential to yep. reach out, for example, yep. right? I mean, you know, so, so are all of the Chinese, all, all of the Chinese apps, right? And so that's what's going to drive it, because they've got that particular yeah, but the bottom of the world has had time to to, to shake out. Um, you know, whether WeChat will justify its its, uh, its market cap is is part of what's resolved in the lower part. 
uh, and yet there's still a lot of dynamic uh, merging. Um, I just want to press that um, the you know the number of players, the, the, the structure of the of the pharmacy retail industry is not exogenous to the question of how the technology supports that that industry. So. Uh, and, and, and the structure of the hotel industry is not. I would say it's endogenous to the, to the um, maybe at the uh, one level, the freedom to, uh, to, to roll up data. So uh, yeah, I, I, did a, I did a case on, on, um, on the loyalty program uh, that Hilton runs, Hilton Honors. And as I was writing it, Hilton was acquiring um, Doubletree and, and in, in fact, trebling the number of beds. And, and so it became kind of stock and stock and obvious <coughs> that the more data you have on the people who stay in your hotels, the more hotels you want to have. That the returns to, to data are very high. And so the, the, the industry rapidly became a, a battle between the three major um, you know, hotels to acquire as many beds as they could so that they could essentially manage a, a significant slice of the, of the traveling public. Same thing happens in, 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 in drug companies. As you get the rise of loyalty programs, so CVS probably first realizes, we've got to have a lot of outlets, because now we can manage customers uh, much more productively than we could before. And so CVS breaks a rule that had been in place for 30 years, like we have the East Coast, uh, who, uh, somebody has the West Coast, and suddenly they're in Chicago and they're, they're entering other people's territories because they realize this is not a battle about geographic, you know, it's not a battle about what's the catchment area of your store, it's a battle about who owns that customer's loyalty card. So data once again becomes but central. That's the only reason why I think that on the right hand side told that story, mm -hmm. right? Because I agree with that 100%. Mm -hmm. That's why in France, when you have those independent pharmacies, that's a lot different than the UK when you right? Yeah. And so yeah. It, it, Well, I mean, it's, it, that's, this is very helpful. Thanks. Um, so you can see the, how the audience selection firms are very different to the customer targeting firms. Um, the, uh, you know, many of these are quite old, but <coughs> this guy grows in the days of ISPs and you know, is able to relatively cleverly use that early advantage. Um, what's going on in audience selection needs to be presented in a more dynamic way, so I'll do that in a second. Um, just to get a sense of, you know, if you, if you buy the argument that it's one ecosystem, then this is how the ecosystem today looks. It's more physical than it is digital, uh, but there is a big piece of it that's both. Uh, in fact, the, the people you, who are in both worlds are bigger than the, than the people in either one of the worlds exclusively. Uh, and this is where the dollars are. Um, I have an observation that I don't think I've got a slide on that says if we pull postal service alone out of this box, we get 18 billion. And if we look at Google, we get uh, 21 billion. In other words, in a, in a funny sort of a way, Google and the post office are about the same size. And then if you'll bear with me one more step, they're, the same, they're in the same industry. They both, uh, the post office works with a, with a, with a sorting system that will, that will get something to a particular person in two to three days. Google has a system that will get it to them in, in a millisecond. But they're both interested in matching um, uh, firms to addresses. 
And so a question on my exam this morning was, what, uh, what does the post office have to do to be more like Google? Uh, by the way, anybody want to have a guess? <laughs> well, I've, I think I have a slide on that, so it'll be time to think about it. But uh, I, I do think they're in the same business, and I do think that, that, um, that uh, running the mail service as a government monopoly or as, as a government-regulated activity it keeps a lot of value from being, from being uh, revealed. Okay, four examples. Firstly, programmatic ad buying. So the basic idea is you go to a website, the publisher, and you are uh, a particular customer. You don't realize that the publisher has two websites. One is delivering ads, the other is delivering content. And the question on the publisher's mind is, which ad do, do I deliver to people with white eyes and red faces? And the answer uh, is going to be resolved by the people who, have, um, who want ads to appear on that publisher's ad server uh, for different reasons, with varying degrees of intensity. So they're going to make bids on an ad exchange. These two are actually brands, and this one is a, is a roll-up of, of branded sites. There's a company called Glam, Glam Media that has assembled about 600 sites that he doesn't own, has no relationship with them, except that it's the exclusive retailer of their advertising space. And it, they're all websites with a high proportion of, of female uh, viewers. So Glam is going to be bidding for, um, for the opportunity to serve those ads to that person if that person is a woman. Um, so they're not yet ready to put their bids in because they don't know who red face really is. Um, but when they put their bids in, there'll be the, the, the information about whatever the publisher knows about red face will pass with the opportunity to buy the ad to the ad exchange. But that's not enough because maybe these guys have a little information right now, but they can't store information about everybody who's showing up on uh, the publisher's website because you know, because most of it won't ever be needed. So an industry has emerged that sort of fits in the middle. I've gotten rid of the fringes just to reveal the structure of this industry. Here are the bidders. There's the property being bid for. And these things called data management platforms are the dreaded dotted line, the corpus callosum that links the online and the offline world. These are the firms that are collecting data whenever there's a match made and trying to interpret from that data who else looks like the, uh, that, that data. So that, um, companies like Blue Kai, um, Data Logics, and so on are trying to perform this data management function. So putting it back in, the system sort of works like this. The ad space is available. It goes to the exchange. Bids are made. One bid wins. That's this person's ad server, and it's delivering the ad to this person on the instructions of the publisher's ad server. Um, probably a few errors there that I wouldn't draw quite like that now. But, but the point is that system operates in something of the order of half a second, so that you as a, as a recipient of the assembled page don't see it as two pages, you see it as simply one page. John, is the design of this made by somebody, or is the design uh, part of interaction? Um, it, yeah, that's, that's, that's sort of... A, it's, it's a great question, and I think the answer is it's, it's evolved quite quickly. Um, 
by, uh, let's see, it's probably a story that, that, that somebody's told, that once upon a time there were, there were ad networks doing all the work. There were no ad exchanges, and the ad networks would, would make the bids. Um, then it was realized that these people have, have, have a bias and interest that ad, ad exchanges worked independently. Um, the imperf imperfection of the data led to the emergence of data management platforms. So m maybe a story can be told that a supply-side platform split off and said, I think we'll just be more of a middleman. Now, if I'm following it correctly, um, the, the, the data management platforms are turning out not to have a very good revenue model. And so Blue Kai was recently acquired by, uh, by Oracle. And, and that sort of says, and, and according to someone I was talking to who worked there, he said, at a price that really disappointed us. Uh, so, so we thought we had a really important element in the picture, but now that element has ended up in wherever Oracle is on this, on this chart. And I, I don't think, I think Oracle's trying to play this whole role, that entire system. Google certainly is trying to do that. So Google will, will want to let the publishers sit out there, but as soon as the publisher reports the arrival of red face with white eyes, Google will say, leave it to us, we'll take care of it all. And you've just got to, to have a lot of faith that the price you're getting from Google is okay. So I think what's happening is maybe this is imploding, but the more it implodes, the more skepticism there'll be that the market is still operating efficiencies, efficiently, so there'll be people moving out. So is, does that answer the question? No. <laughs> In other words, it's a, it's a fluid system of, of trial and error. And uh, you can have a lot of fun uh, reading Wikipedia on this subject, which is probably the place where it's best documented because it's changing uh, all the time. So, and Wikipedia tends to be relatively fresh. But yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of fascinating because it's a self-organizing system um, which fails and then has to reorganize. Okay, so you know, that's what the post office has to compete against, half a second to get that degree of precision in the matching. Um, now, a, a different question. Uh, Facebook. How good is the matching? Um, do you have any impression of how? Compared to what? Well, I'm just based on, based on Italian personal experience. I think the matching is terrible. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I get these pop-up ads which are completely useless in the road. And yet someone... Uh, someone spending billions on this. And they can get it to me in half a second. So they and they know that. I don't know. Right? I they do. Right. Yeah. They're very interested in in in, in, those, yeah. in that wastage. So you can be sure that. I'm sure it's, you're telling me. I think you're telling me it's much more effective than older methods. Mm -hmm. It's much cheaper. So the 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 old the, the very old method of delivering. This is all display. This is not paid search. Right. This is all display. The very old method was called banner ads. And banner ads were renowned for not working. And um, then you got what were called um, publishers' premium inventory. So you have to be on the front page of the Wall Street Journal's website because your financial product is, is given luster by being there. Okay. And that's the benchmark. So when, when that money is spent on programmatic ad buying, it's because they can, they can, they can conclude not on tight evidence, we'll see tight evidence in the study I'm about to show you, but we can, we can conclude reasonably robustly that we don't need to pay $10 a thousand or $20 a thousand to the Wall Street Journal, we can pay $2 a thousand to the, um, 
to, to, the, to the programmatic uh, exchange. And right after we, we did this session in my class, the, in fact, the very afternoon, Procter & Gamble announced that 75% of its display advertising next, this year will be bought on programmatic, um, uh, will be programmatic purchases. So they, what they're really saying is enough with the, um, you know, the, the mystique of the brand. If it's, if it's P&G household goods, we don't need somebody saying my brand of publisher will add luster to your brand. Right. All we want to do is get in front of the customer. Uh, anyway, on the way. Yeah. This is terrible. They can, <laughs> they, can uh, they can fight back. This, this, so you know, the, in the world of, of ad buying, there's, there's two principles. One is you buy the publication. The other is you buy the person. And you can make an argument for both. Do I want you, or do I want you only in the context of a prestigious publication? And um, you know, you, you work it out. You you, you try for L'Oreal finds with Lancome, it's got to be the right publication. Lancome's not showing up on some porn site, right? N not that porn sites are a problem here. They, they can kind of be marginalized. But the next, the next worst thing, um, Lancome has got to be very, very careful. It, it ben the, this elasticity of response to a branded website is high. Um, Maybelline might not have that problem. Yeah. And, and that's all experimentally observable. It's all testable through AB. OK, so now Facebook want as, um, wants to know if its ads work. And so it got together with, um, with, dynamic log with Data Logics. Data Logics is one of those dotted line companies that knows some people by name and address. And, and, said, um, and, and, and Data Logics has also cut deals with 19 supermarket chains, which is effectively all the supermarket chains in the US, to be able to ping their frequent shopper programs at will. Well, slightly different rules for different programs, but for all practical purposes, they can go into a, um, a frequent shopper program with a name and address and say, what's this person bought since we last pinged them? Um, they used that information to construct 300 behavioral segments, called them market segments. They then give those segments to, um, to Facebook. And so, um, so there's data logics. Those segments are constructed by Axiom, which is on the old customer targeting side of things. The consultants to that project are Omnicom, um, working with Epsilon. They're not the same company at all. And um, what happens then is Axiom says, make an offer to people in each of these particular segments, not all 300, um, whenever they appear on Facebook. And that's where Blue Kai comes in. It, it matches the arrival on the, f on the, on the website with the, um, with the fact that you're in, in a desired segment, and out goes an, an, an ad. Data Logics then watches you for the next three weeks, which is about your life, uh, the life of the confidence that, that the ad was actually delivered to you, and waits to see if you buy. And, and in, in a significant number of cases, is able to show that you know, this ad worked for this segment better than for that segment, and that this ad works better than that ad for holding the segment constant. So in an A-B sense, within a three-week repurchase cycle, I think this is the first time that we've seen ads work or not work. <laughs> uh, 
There have been split cable and various other technologies, but this looks like the best thing that, that I've seen. Hiram. Is that ad only presented on Facebook? I mean, is it something that they would see somewhere else? Or are they able to say that this is for a particular kind of product that won't be advertised somewhere else? Well, that I don't know. Uh, but I would, I would assume that's noise. That's working against the, the signal. Yeah. Um, I'm also told that Facebook no longer uses uh, data logics and that they've internalized a lot of that thing. And that's, that's I think, from a regulatory point of view, very important. If they, if they don't need to make data purchases of the kind that we were monitoring, then regulators can't monitor it either. So, you know, that's a different benefit. It's the benefit of, of now being able to hard link and, and add exposure to, to a transaction. I don't think it's going to work for a, a number of product categories. You know, there are many things where that won't work, but for, for CPG products, consumer goods purchased in supermarkets, we, it's, it's, uh, it's time we had that quality of data. Whether, it's, whether it freaks out the shoppers or not is a, a whole other issue. Yeah? So just a, a method question. So I'll just diagrams like this. Did you play around with yeah. uh, different types of arrows, like information arrows, money arrows? No, and we did not arrows. estimate these, these arrows. So uh, what we're trying to do here is use the color code and the structure to... Um, to map things that we pick up from the trade press and from discussions with firms. We have, we have no data um, because they have the data and they have no interest so in sharing it. mean data as well as money, as well as commercial transactions? What would the arrows really do? So the arrows are intended to indicate a time, a time dependency. So the strategist comes first. Axiom takes the instructions from the strategist, executes in two directions toward the, the, the publisher and toward the, um, the, uh, the machine. And, um, and then back comes the feedback from the supermarket and from Facebook. So it all ends up in data logic and, and, and No, it, well, it ends up in an analysis that tells Facebook yet yeah, the, the ad worked for these segments. So I suppose we need another arrow that runs from data logics back to Facebook and says, yeah. you know, up or down. Or, or theoretically, you, you, know, you, could have, you could vary the thickness of the arrows predicated on the value. Yes. So you could then say who's got the power. I mean, in many sense, really, where's the value of extraction in this case? Yeah, no, that's, that's right. I mean, th this is way beyond where I think I was. <laughs> I, was I was thinking... Yeah, no, exactly. I don't mean that to, uh, you know, defensively. I just mean that, that that's where we need to... I, I see a lot of econometric papers in marketing science and so on that uh, seem to me... Uh, how can I put this? You know, they're, 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 they're um, treating this problem as if it was one-way causal and probably there's a three-step three sequence. Um, I'm seeing it as, as a more, um, uh, more of a process and, and, a, and a highly iterative process that, that I don't know is very easy to, to model econometrically. I, I, I don't know. Um, okay, so that's the second thing that you can do is you can measure with ads work. Um, this one is more tentative, but it's often puzzled me that Walmart doesn't have a loyalty program. And... Um, 
I decided to compare it to Amazon because Amazon doesn't need a loyalty program. Um, Amazon knows you know, it's going to deliver the stuff to you, so it knows the name and address of, of every customer it deals with. Supermarkets needed loyalty programs because they didn't have, um, because without them, customers were in anonymous. Every interaction was, in a sense, the first interaction. So I wasn't so much interested in, 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 in why Walmart doesn't have a loyalty program as how can that get close to the, to the market efficiency of a closed system like, 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 um, like Amazon. Amazon is, we could have a whole discussion about the beauty of Amazon, but it's a, it's a, it's a very beautiful, very elegant system. Um, and, and the explanation is, well, this is not the explanation, this is the puzzle. Every Amazon customer is fully identified with personally identifiable information. No Walmart customer is so identified. How can Walmart hope to compete? Does Walmart credit card Does Walmart? Well, most transactions are not credit card based. Yeah. I mean, some may be, but, um, but the question of what you can get from a credit card company is, is, is tied up in credit card regulations. I just want to maybe, I, I don't know what the deal is done, but if I'm Walmart and you're a customer and you, you shop on two consecutive Mondays, can I see that you're, it's the same credit card? <laughs> Have you ever had a retailer ask you for your postcode? Frequently, yeah. yeah. On a growing basis. <laughs> right. That's because that's the, if they More can get... More American, actually. Yes. And if yeah. they can get your postcode, they don't need to ask the credit card company for that information. Right. There are companies that have, can, with fairly high degree of reliability, match you to uh, somebody, to the same person who was there a little while ago. So Walmart themselves can't keep, they don't have that credit card. Right. right. The, the credit cards are very... Um, I, I actually, this, this, this uh, world changes quite frequently, but I'm, my, my sort of going, ongoing understanding is that credit card companies want that data for themselves. They don't particularly want their retailers uh, playing with that data. Because what they know that no, no retailer knows is um, each retailer's market share. I mean, there's no way you, even a loyalty program knows that. What are you doing? Although Tesco used to apparently compute the calorie count of every basket to work out if you were cheating. <laughs> How can you be this fat if you're only eating this many calories? Because that's the number one problem that retailers currently face, is they don't know if you're cheating and going to another retailer. Um, so how do I get from, you know, from this question to, that, uh, to the answer? Well, I use a thing called uh, ghostery. And, and some of you may have tried this. You put ghostery on your browser, and every site you visit, including uh, SBS, uh, will, be, will reveal all its secrets to you. It'll tell you who's getting in on the act. So there's Adobe. What's called? It's called Ghostery, G-H-O-S-T-E-R-Y. It'll drive you nuts. Uh, but down here, you've essentially got a list of, of, of the machinery. Some of them are obvious. I mean, Adobe is a competitor. Why doesn't this work? Uh, Adobe's a competitor with, um, with Google Analytics. Uh, you should have... Uh, actually, they, they don't have um, double-click there. Yeah. Facebook Exchange is there, which means Facebook, you know, you, you can map this person to, some, to a Facebook member, and so on down. I mean, it, it, it's, it's getting to the point where you have to know every one of those companies to live in this world. So I take that, I put them into the audience selection side of the story, I put Axiom into the story telling Walmart who they should be going after, 
from historical data, and then I try to work out what's, what's going on. You've got Walmart Labs, which looks a lot like some of these audience selection companies, but internal. So Walmart's trying to build this capability internally using its own labs. You've got Walmart.com, which of course is great because it's, it's seeing people captured by some identifier. You're seeing the Walmart app, which again is, is more powerful than a, than, a, than a loyalty card. And then you've got this, this problem, <laughs> you know, the, the anonymous Walmart store people. So what you're trying to do is map from the, from the website and the app into the person in the store using anything you can, such as asking for their postal code so that you can trace them back. Um, so I don't know how this works, but you can get the general idea. And, and one of my assignments is to go see if Walmart will explain it to, to us. Uh, since they don't have any competitors, they may just feel boastful and actually tell us. Um, finally, the merging of the online and offline worlds. So I've got about um, uh, 15 minutes. Yeah. The online and offline worlds um, are, are reflected in, in this chart. There's a company called Red Plum that sends you a little packet in the mail that's full of coupons. And you may, if you pay a lot of interest to, realize that the contents of that envelope matches your recent browsing history and be totally freaked out. Like, who's watching my, <laughs> my mailbox? And, and the answer is that Velasquez is watching it. And um, so they are literally constructing a coupon envelope, which is a very low cost per delivered coupon that's based on what you've been doing. And then they're going to watch you after you've done it uh, as you move through an, an, an ad network to see if you're going back to those sites and finally pick you up if, if they can uh, when you make a transaction. So you know, the, the Federal Trade Commission should be watching that company with a lot of interest because it's not just aggregating online and offline identities. It's using online and offline identities to intrude into the, uh, into the offline world. Um, so to get back to the question of Google, um, um, I think the difference is not speed. It's got nothing to do with half a second versus three days. I think it's got to do with um, detecting consumer response. So uh, the post office doesn't know it's got a rough idea that the mail got to you. It's got no idea if you opened it or not. That's really serious, because if they don't know if you opened it, they don't know how to price it. And so they price at the same price to everybody. Um, the, the, the two sub-points there, I think, are just, uh, just um, well, let's, let's ignore them. I should have. So if a post office has to behave like a Google, it's got to measure both the provocation and the response to the provocation. How can it do that, by the way? We could have an envelope that tells it if it's seen it. Very good. <laughs> you thought about this problem. No, but that seems to me the obvious response. And do you think I the post office has thought of... I don't know how you believe the design such thing. Presumably, it's not completely impossible. And, and at, at what cost? Well, it would have to be a very low cost. But, but given that it costs typically a... Um, you know, something like a pound or a pound fifty to mail that big packet to you, putting an RFID chip on it. Yeah. Yep. Could have a colossal impact on. And then, what, if you can do that, if you have something that shows that you've broken the envelope, or. Um, or even yeah, tell me more. You know, 
<laughs> okay. Well, think about it and take it down the road and <laughs> sell it to the post office because I don't think they've thought about the importance of this question. Because you can do that. Two men, which makes the lowest power chips in the world. Yeah, they're analog, not digital, because they're so analog is much less power than digital. Okay. And so for something like this, analog is much less accurate too, but it doesn't need to be accurate. So then you could put a sensor on top of your mailbox. Or put it on the end of the envelope, if you mass produce them enough. I see. Tell you if the envelope has been ignored. Uh, oh, that is a lower tech version, which they've been using for 50 years, which is a business supply or free post envelope. Well, right, right. It actually generates the click-through equivalents. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, those, those, uh, those envelopes, uh, those things are really good. You could put a pigeon in each envelope and <laughs> wait for it to get back. Um, but notice what you can do. Then you can price per response, not per transmission. I mean, the, the, the wonderful thing that Google's done that nobody had done before is be willing to re be rewarded only if what they're selling works. You know, we never thought of that <laughs> in business because it's a terribly dangerous way to make a living, promising that the thing will work and then actually pitching your price based on whether it works or not. But you could do that. Uh, and then you have... Clients willing to pay if only if it works, and and I think this I think this is very important. Your mailbox would not be full of junk mail, because both the receiver and the sender would have an incentive not to not to waste. Whereas at the moment, you know you pay your you pay your price, you get the one percent opening rate, and that's it. But the the thing about Google is you don't get Google search ads unless Google thinks they've got a chance of working. No matter what you are prepared to pay for them, Google says, look, you know, we have an interest in our customers liking the results. So incentives are aligned against waste and therefore uh, a system which discourages unwelcome intrusions. You make auctioning possible and then you start thinking, well, maybe we should be like Facebook and we should give away the first class mail. Uh, because what you really are in danger, I think the greatest danger that uh, postal services face right now is that people, I tried to close down my mail service when I came here. I said, look, I've never received anything interesting through the mail. I just, I just don't want it. And they said, what do you think we are, a warehouse? <laughs> We're not going <laughs> to store your mail. <laughs> we have a sacred trust to deliver it. <laughs> um, but if, so th there's a real danger. I'm saying in Australia, people are putting signs on their mailboxes saying no, no, no junk mail. And apparently, you're allowed to do that. So if you don't have something to get people to be interested in their mailbox again, uh, it could, the whole thing could go away. And I, I think uh, the Facebook of you know, declaring myself to be a postal friend of yours uh, could be something with, yeah. There is that uh, in browsers they try to more or less persuade people to not be scared about advertising anymore and they have to click, don't follow me, which uh -huh. is more or less like, don't send me junk. Yes. Do you see any effect of that? Oh yeah, that, uh, that's the great, I mean, look what happened to telemarketing. That used to, uh, there were people living in Miami in expensive houses who got it by phoning you in the middle of dinner time. Um, there's a similar group of rich people sending you mail you don't open. Um, and and, and there's, a do, there's a do not mail bill you know, in Congress every year. And one day it'll get through. So I think it's really important that there be a defense against that. Okay, which raises the larger issue of you know, is everything that I've talked about here, the 10 to 15% of the industry that is becoming more efficient, um, vulnerable to a privacy attack? Well, um, it could take three forms, legislation, litigation, regulation. Um, probably regulation depends on legislation, but uh, not entirely. So, so a couple of thoughts. 
firstly, um, offline doesn't seem to bother anybody that much. Once you get rid of the phone, we don't seem to mind too much that Velasquez coupons look like something we just visited online. Um, the privacy itself is a very fluid concept. That's the second point. Sometimes we see it as a human right, particularly here in Europe. Um, in the US, we don't because we constructed our privacy laws in 1776. And so we have a good law against unreasonable search and seizure in case the British ever come back and try to see what we've got. So you're not allowed to search people. Uh, and so as a result, we get this paradox that while at the same month that, that Europe uh, has a right to forget principle, a human right to be forgotten, uh, America announces um, that you don't have a right to read someone's cell phone address list uh, during an arrest, that that requires a search warrant. Why? Because it wouldn't have been approved of in the 1700s, because it's unreasonable search. So we in the States can't contemplate a right to forget. We see that as censorship, comparable to what happens in China. You here don't have a particular phobia against reading what someone's you know, most recent telephone calls during a bank robbery. Um, but moving beyond a right, you might argue that it's a cultural norm. You might say the fact that we don't mind about on, um, offline activity suggests we've kind of gotten used to it, that we might have been worried. It didn't seem to do us any harm. OK, it's just it's how the world works. And then finally, the, the argument that maybe our privacy is an asset. After all, we pay to, be, to not be in the phone book. We pay for certain kinds of protection against uh, being observed. The rich get it, the poor don't. So possibly, we, each of us have a privacy identity that has a commercial value. And debates about cultural norms or, uh, or human rights would go out of the window if we all got a check for $30 every, every year for um, providing limited access to our precious people. And then the third point I'd make as a general guideline is that we seem to be much more concerned as a, as a people about intrusion than about surveillance. I think surveillance is the greater danger, and maybe the NSF and Snowden um, exposures will change that balance, but I, I suspect not. I suspect that what really annoys us is telemarketing and, um, and, and a full mailbox with nothing of interest in it. But we don't s seem to know what to make of the fact that we're being monitored uh, in many different ways. As a result, um, I think that we will have regulation. I think that in the US, it's going to be legislative. And in Europe, it's going to be judicial. Um, and that the legislative domain will be, will be misapplied because it will focus on intrusion. And the judicial domain will be will be heavily fettered by, by precedent and, and so will probably be more efficient in the, in, in the, in the EU. Um, but, but then, you know, but, but we'll see. I mean, already this, this uh, right to be forgotten is, is producing a tremendous amount of, of puzzlement. Uh, Google is going out of its way to tell journalists that their stories have been spiked. And so the, the journalists are then frantically telling everybody that their stories have been spiked, which produces um, uh, what was her name? The, uh, the uh, oh gosh, um, sorry. Well, Robert Peston is the, is the journalist that Google targeted. Yes, they knowing that he's a very proud person and he would go nuts 
So he went nuts. But who was the tennis player who said, please don't publish a photograph of my house, and as a result of which everybody published photographs of their house? Um, so by, by saying you may not know the name of the person that Robert Preston uh, <coughs> exposed, uh, we now have a, a month or a week in which everybody's talking about the person that Robert Preston uh, exposed, and the poor person who wants his anonymity has precisely lost it. Um, well, yeah, well, one other point, John, is this, this comes from the, the, the cyber stuff I've been working on, is that uh, to the extent that you put holes in your data, you show up as an anomaly, oh. which identifies you. Oh. It's a very good way of identifying people if they decide to keep certain th things secret, because that says that they're weird. Right. Exactly, right. If there's nothing about you between uh, 2002 and 2003, well, we suspect there was something about you, right? You were an anomaly. Very, very good point. Pretty significant. Yeah, right. So just wrapping up with one minute to go. Um, policy horizon, I would say legislatively intrusion is a very hot issue. Surveillance is a cold issue. By that I mean um, that we can always get a crowd to protest about, about surveillance. It's really, really hard to convince people that they should worry about surveillance. Um, and, and there are a lot of harms that come from surveillance that are not felt, but it's just very hard to make compassionate. The, the second point, which I haven't emphasized in this talk, but I think it's very serious, is that um, regulation of all kinds will hurt data flows more than it will hurt data stocks. And that means that those people who are already over, you know, through the fence, Google, Facebook, uh, and so on, uh, Axiom, are, are home free. Uh, two people in a garage are never going to get to start another Google because there just won't be a way to monetize the, the process uh, because Google will make sure that flows of data, the sale of data, will not be permitted. Um, and then uh, Axiom has recently announced what they call uh, um, aboutthedata.com where you can go and find out everything they know about you. Trouble is you have no idea the value of what they know about you. With all of the data that they have, they can estimate your income and your net worth to within 1%. You don't realize that. When you see, oh, they know I have a dog, how sweet. And it realize that that puts your income one notch up uh, because people with dogs tend to be better off than, except for a couple of folks on the high street. But um, <laughs> um, it's hard to get, and, and yet I think this is my position, and it's not completely supported by the evidence today, but I, I, re I believe that big data will fundamentally uh, continue to play the role that um, we're beginning to see it playing in marketing today. And therefore, um, I have a, a thing which I'm not going to give time to, to cover, but what I think a course in marketing needs to start looking like uh, as we think about the next decade. Um, there are things that... There are only 15% of the story today and probably 0% for a lot of people's careers, but if they don't know today something about the way things are going to be in 10 years' time, they have a very short career. So uh, somehow we have to find ways to understand the ecosystem, if it is indeed a stable ecosystem. Uh, we have to understand principles like the, cu the customer as an asset, um, how you identify that asset, how you invest efficiently to acquire that asset, to retain it. And that's beginning to look like, you know, if finance is how you play with money, then um, marketing is how you play with customers using more or less analogous principles. I'd, I'd like to see uh, marketing taught 
in a sense, the way um, Google often describes it as, you know, marketing is the new finance. Uh, that can be broken down into problems in advertising, problems in pricing, problems in distribution, and then problems in integrating the physical and, and, and digital. So that's my story, and thank you for your attention and some, some really challenging questions, particularly at the beginning. You know, I, I think framing marketing this way uh, got severely tested in the early part of the discussion, so thank you for that. <laughs>